Today's program was brought to you by Blueprint, the original juice cleanse program to offer different levels of intensity depending on your needs and current diet. For more information, visit Blueprint.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to After the Jump. I'm your host, Grace Bonney, and today we're coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You can listen to the show live every Thursday at 11 a.m. on heritageradionetwork.org or download the podcast on iTunes. Today, I am thrilled to be speaking with my all-time favorite ceramicist ever, Molly Hatch. When I think about ceramics, I think about Molly. I discovered her work through my good friend and co-worker, Christina Gill, who was working with Molly's tableware for a food photo shoot and gave me one of her beautiful mugs as a Christmas gift. I have used that mug on a daily basis ever since, and it has remained one of my favorite things that I own. Since then, Molly's work has been collected, commissioned, and exhibited nationally and internationally, and has been licensed in partnership with brands like Anthropology, Gallison, and Chronicle. Her work is in every great design, design shop that I visit, and frankly, deserves to be. I have so many questions I'd like to ask Molly, so I want to dive right in. Molly, thanks so much for being here today. I, that was quite an introduction. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, I love to start just like way, way, way back in the beginning. So let's talk about where you grew up. Uh, I grew up in Vermont on a small organic dairy farm. So my parents were sort of pioneers of um, the, like total hippies yeah. back to the earth. Um, and my childhood was really spent, you know, days on the farm. Um, but we also, uh, came, my parents came from quite an interesting family background. So we had a lot of amazing decorative art objects around. Um, and I think that had a lot to do with forming my aesthetic interests. Um, so my, you know, I, I grew up working hard and playing hard in the dirt and um, doing things myself. And I think that that's um, had a lot to do with my interest in making things and doing things myself now. Yeah. yeah, that's so cool. Did they encourage you to work with clay? Were you trying that at a younger age or was that something you discovered later? Um, my mother's a painter, so she was a farmer and painter. And so I think um, I art was always and my grandmother as well so we'd go and visit my grandmother and that was what she spent her days doing and she had a studio and it sort of I think it was always presented to me being an artist was presented to me as an option um and uh I think later on you know I, I applied for colleges and um got into, you know, Reed and a bunch of other schools and then was kind of panicked at the last minute <laughs> because no one would give me any money. And the only school that gave me money to go was the museum school in Boston. And um, they were affiliated with Tufts. So I was like, all right, there's good academics and there's good, <laughs> there's a good um, art school. And I thought, you know, that's, I knew I wanted to do art, but I was yeah. worried that I wasn't going to make money yet. <laughs> My dad kept saying, you know, you're not going to make money, which is sort of ironic coming from a dairy farmer. <laughs> Um, but you know, he think maybe, maybe he was coming from a good place <laughs> worrying about it. So did you end up majoring in something different or did you, you no, went full force with it? I art? went, you know, I decided the minute I was like, all right, well maybe the world's trying to tell me that I need to be making art for a living. You know, the only school that gave me a scholarship, which was a really hefty one at that time yeah. was this school. And, um, in, in Boston. So I, I went and I went for it and I thought I was going to be a photographer Ironically, <laughs> like I, I was going to make um, take photos for, you know, for what I was going to concentrate on. And I got to the museum school and 
this was pre-internet mm-hmm. um, registration. So we had to line up and have our portfolios reviewed by the professors. And they wow. it was sort of brutal because yeah. you're in line. <laughs> like all these other students are like, you know, having their, you know, sign you in order to get in the class, the professor had to like literally approve your portfolio and wow. sign you up for the class. So I remember going to the photo professor being pretty full of myself at the time. Like, I <laughs> like know what I'm doing. every high school student. <laughs> exactly. And I went up to him and, you know, and he was like, yeah, you need to start over again. And I was like, I'm never taking another photo uh, class yeah. again. And I didn't actually. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to go do something. And basically what happened was that I ended up falling in love with drawing and, um, it felt like it could be anything like drawing was the basis for anything that I could do, um, down the line, whether, you know, whether it was ceramics or something else that ended up being my, uh, focus. So, um, I spent most of my time there drawing and then, um, played with clay, like Mm -hmm. starting my first year, like took a pottery class, but didn't really understand how, how it would be important for me. Mm -hmm. I just knew that I enjoyed that, that it was utilitarian, that people could use the things that I was making. And then my last year of school's amazing sort of watershed person for me came as a visiting artist. Her name's Kathy King, and she's now running the program at Harvard, um, the ceramics program there. And she was like, just out of grad school and she was young and she came in with like Betty Page bangs and like biker <laughs> boots and I was like ceramics is so cool yeah. like I have to and she was making all this sort of feminist art mm-hmm. and drawing on her pots and I was like oh man you know and she said look you can take these drawings that you're doing and prints that you're doing and put them on clay and it was just like you know, boom, that was it for me. Like yeah. I, it was that towards the, that was the end of college or? Mm-hmm. Um, it was my last year of school um, at, at the museum school. And so then I thought, okay, well now I'm going to be a potter. I'm yeah. going to do this. And I went to my professors and said, I want to learn everything there is to know about firing kilns and all the technical, amazing amount of technical stuff that you need to know yeah. to, to master clay <laughs> and um, absorbed as much as I could with my time left. And, um, Graduated and went to work for a pottery in Vermont, um, which was a little bit serendipitous because the pottery was a friend of a friend kind of thing. And um, the woman's name is Miranda Thomas, and she still has a pottery in um, Bridgewater, Vermont, and she's quite successful. Her husband's a woodworker. My husband's now a woodworker. There's like a lot of wood clay relationships out there. It's a little embarrassing sometimes. I'm like, yes, we are the cliche of wood and clay. Um, But uh, she... She was she trained in England with Bernard, uh, uh, an assistant to Bernard Leach, um, Michael Cardew, and his grandson was there working at the pottery, trying to get his residency in the U.S. as green card. So I got to work with this amazing sort of British legend, um, sort of studio tradition. Um, she's she spent most of her training in England with Michael Cardew as well. So um, I got really entrenched in sort of. Um, very traditional training Mm -hmm. about how to be a studio potter. And I think I learned most of, I can attribute most of my ceramic education to her. (laughs) What was the very first like big step you took as a ceramicist that made you feel like I'm definitely making this a career and I can definitely do it? Well, I think part, there's a, it's like a challenging question to answer (laughs) because I think, um, I think a lot of what I've done in my career and ended up making a living at um, as a result of is sort of naivety. Like I'm just interested and I'm going for mm-hmm. it. And I think I grew up in a, not having a lot. And so yeah. I understood what it was like to not, 
to not have to like I didn't need a lot like I grew up shopping in thrift stores and and I think I so I wasn't like after some amazing wealthy lifestyle um but I think there was a point working at the pottery in Vermont where I was like wow I don't want to it was kind of like working in a factory yeah I worked 40 hours a week throwing pots I was throwing 200 mugs a day um and my body was wrecked and I was like 23 and I was like okay wait a second (laughs) like (laughs) what am I gonna do like when I can't feel my arms at 40 you know um so I went back to school and went for my graduate degree um thinking, okay, I'm going to be an artist. Like, yeah. I'm going to make it, you know, who, I mean, because <laughs> that's so financially viable. <laughs> um, so I went back to school um, after doing some travel and things and um, sort of questioned what I wanted to do. And, I, you know, I've always loved teaching. It's always been something mm-hmm. that has been really, in thinking about what I do is sort of the big picture. I mean, there's a sort of microcosm, macrocosm in anything that anyone does. And I think, um, living on the farm, growing up on a farm, mm-hmm. you think about like, I mean, so my parents were pioneers of organic dairy farming in the eighties. Like that wasn't cool then. It was weird. <laughs> I was the kid at school with tempeh sandwiches, you know, like it didn't, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it, um, I think I understood early on that like if you, and it turned out to be quite successful. Mm-hmm. And I think if you passionately believe in something and you persist that it will work out, I have to continue going on that faith that it will continue to work out for me. Um, But I think um, I there, so there wasn't really like a turning point aside from that maybe watershed moment of meeting Kathy and putting Mm -hmm. together the fact that it was ceramics and drawing. And um, I think ever since then, my career has been about advocating for ceramics as a fine art medium. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I'm really, really interested in how, you can make a plate into a drawing or a mm. vase into a drawing or how do you, you know, how do you push someone to see, to see something that we use every day in such a mm-hmm. sort of banal way? Yeah. Like take a second look. Um, so I think, you know, going to graduate school and honing, honing my technical skills and also honing the conceptual parts of it was, was important. That's an interesting distinction to talk about something that's an everyday object and to make that something that people invest in or see as a piece of fine art. Has that been a challenging sort of message to get people to accept? Or do you think that people are receptive to the idea of investing in the everyday? Yeah, I think um, there's certainly a community of people supporting the handmade, Mm -hmm. um, though my work has shifted away from that um, a lot. And I think as long as the integrity of the object originally is there, I'm, I have no problem with manufacturing the work. But um, I do think that, I mean, a lot of my work and what makes it special, even in the manufactured pieces that I, the design pieces that I license, um, there's a specialness in sort of, you flip it over and the back is paid attention to, or yeah. the underside or the inside. I want people to... Um, have an aesthetic experience of that object when they're sitting across from someone and they're drinking out of the cup Mm -hmm. and there's like a little flash of a picture for the person across from you. And so I'm trying to think about how we experience an object and how you can draw attention to that from all perspectives as much as possible. Um, And it's an interesting, I think there's a, a going to graduate school, I think one of my major assertions of, you know, pots as an art form Mm -hmm. was because I was in a program that was super entrenched in, um, you know, sort of asserting ceramics as a sculptural material. Mm -hmm. And I was like, functional objects can be sculptural, can be conceptual. And 
I mean, yes, you can conceptualize anything. I mean, I think there was like one critique where one of my professors threw a matchbook on the table and we did this like conceptualization exercise around <laughs> and we were all like, okay, so you can bullshit about anything. Um, but in the case of, um, for me, it was like, I kept being told that pots weren't, you can't hang pots in a museum. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, right now I, I just am working in the studio right now on a commission for the high museum in Atlanta, um, in their lobby, they've they've commissioned me to make an installation of 475 plates that hang as a painting, and so I'm like, yay, pots! <laughs> Here we are! Like I'm doing it, you know? I'm yeah. hanging pots in a museum, and I was pretty much told that that wasn't going to happen. And I feel like, okay, so, it, you know, if you again, if you persist and you have something you feel strongly about, like maybe you can help people see what you see. Well, I think one of the ways or one of the reasons you've been so, so successful in making people see that is that you're taking it really seriously. And I think you're putting this sort of story and this sort of passion behind it that didn't exist when that maybe was a trend a few years ago. And you keep talking about these like everyday objects that are being elevated. I keep in my brain going immediately back to like 2004 when I first started working and Brooklyn was all about this sort of tongue in cheek version of that mm. of like, let's take everyday objects like takeout containers, let's cast them mm. in porcelain and then put gold all over them. And it was this sort of of like tongue in cheek, which was still interesting and funny and like an art like an artistic statement to make, but it it wasn't something that for me would encourage me to invest money in it because it mm. seemed like just sort of this funny young like anti-establishment statement to make. But it was the same concept of let's mm -hmm. take things that you interact with every day and elevate them to this different level. But I think you're doing it in a way that makes people look at it a second time and they're not just having this like sort of very young reaction to it or sort of a juvenile reaction to it. They're having this like, oh, I want to invest in this thing because she's clearly put so much time into mm -hmm. it and so much thought. And especially the way that you tie history mm -hmm. into the things you're doing. That's such a huge, huge part of what you do. Um, when did you start sort of looking at bringing in historical motifs or patterns or tr sort of like movements and art into your contemporary ceramics work? I, th I think that... Um I mean, I mentioned this earlier that my aesthetic sort of interests were formed pretty young, and I had a lot of um, decorative art objects that were surrounded um, surrounded me when I was growing up, and I think that those um, those had a large part of me understanding or coveting, like the covetousness of an object. Mm -hmm. Like I think there was a lot more sentimental meaning and value. Like, I understood my inheritance as coming through objects, like mm -hmm. monetary inheritance coming through objects. Um, so I was, like, on a dairy farm eating off of silver but and having, like, grandfather clocks and, like, mm -hmm. oriental rugs. It was, like, mm -hmm. the most bizarre contrast. <laughs> like, um, And I think that, uh, you know, so history has been something that I've always been interested in, particularly decorative mm -hmm. um, art history, surface design and patterning, um, you know, William Morris has been a longtime hero, <laughs> um, and I and for multiple reasons. But um, I think there was a point in graduate school where one of my favorite professors, Kim Dickey, she said, you know, be obsessed by something, and it was one of the best. Um, you know, I think I didn't realize that I was obsessed necessarily, and I sort of just started stepping back and paying attention to the things that I was sort of doing on the side or mm -hmm. the things that I was really interested in that maybe I did I felt a little bit guilty about like I had this like whole like around that time Marie Antoinette came out um the the film by oh, um, the Sofia Coppola version. yes and I mean what an aesthetic pleasure that movie was and it was like I was like oh my god I was totally obsessed and I think there's this 18th century there's a 
there's a sort of political, social, political conundrum there that's similar, mirror similar things to the one percent, mm-hmm. um, you know, conundrum we have at the moment in our own. And I think I think that sort of dichotomy of having and ha- not having, and sort of this pinnacle of craftsmanship during that time period of the 18th century, and sort of the example of what you could do, mm-hmm. um, but then this sort of dichotomy of who was paying for it and who was doing it. Um, was really interesting to me. And so I, I just sort of let myself run with that. And mm-hmm. I think um, that was really important. And to realize also that, like, at the same time, I was, like, going to anthropology on the side. <laughs> like, there was a new store that opened in Boulder when I was in grad school. And I was, like, going there all the time and kind of guiltily looking at the things on the shelves. And little did I know, I was, like, doing homework. Yeah. Like, I ended up – I mean, they were at, there was one crit in grad school where they were, like – do you think you're, you know, you should be pay- paying attention to, you know, the art history books and things. And, and I was, but at the same, they were like, you're not going to end up on the shelves at anthropology. And it was sort of like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like you know, and all the magazine, home magazines that I used to buy in high school, like I would read Martha Stewart in high school. And I think my yeah. mom was like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> And I was doing my homework. I was a homewares designer then, you know, I just didn't know it. And yeah. um, so I think paying attention to those things that, I, you know, so, I mean, that's a sort of a long-winded answer, but um, even more recently and more pointedly, I, you know, I was sourcing a lot of historic imagery, mm-hmm. and now we have this luxury of going online. I mean, the Victoria and Albert Museum's entire collection is pretty much digitized, and I just sourced a bunch of their imagery for a project that's um, currently up in at a, the Gallery and Anthropology on King's Road in London, and... Um, you know, you can go to the museums and talk to them specifically about, you know, I mean, I just called the museum in Boston and said, hey, you know, I went to school there. I love the print collection. I want to work with those. I want to blow them up on, you know, plates and play with scale and um, intimacy of prints blown up and lard. And they were like, okay, come in and photograph the collections. And I just went in, put some white gloves on and was going through the drawers and it was like oh my god there's this huge history that I can mine for my own artwork and play with and comment on and and I have permission to do that and it's like you know all of a sudden it was like you know this amazing resource that I hadn't really like I didn't I felt a little guilty about before and all Mm -hmm. of a sudden I had permission to do it yeah it felt so great yeah well we're gonna take a very quick break and we will be right back with Molly Hatch Blueprint is the original juice cleanse program to offer different levels of intensity depending on your needs and current diet. Designed to purify and detoxify, Blueprint Cleanse is made from the freshest 100% raw and USDA certified organic ingredients, cold pressed to retain nutrients and flavor. Blueprint also offers a line of organic juices, cold pressed and raw, in a variety of fruit and vegetable combinations and available in individual bottles. Blueprint Cleanse is available at Whole Foods Market and many other retailers across the U.S. To learn more about their line of organic cleanses, juices, and other products, visit them today at Blueprint.com or call them at 866-774-6831. That's 866-774-6831. Work hard, play hard. Cleanse, repeat. Hey. 
Hey, welcome back to After the Jump. Today I'm speaking with artist and ceramicist Molly Hatch. And before the break, we were talking about the way you're mixing in historical imagery. So I want to cut a little bit to the present. And I want to know who's inspiring you right now. It can be designers from the past, but I want to know, like, right now, what are the things that you're, like, most obsessed with and most inspired by? Um, uh, I'm, I think I look still to history a lot. I mean, Fornicetti obviously has... Mm. Um, a precedent of working with images on plates. Yeah. And I think that I'm definitely, you know, I'm aware of what he's done and I think it's really f- a fun, I feel like he just scratched the surface with that and yeah. it's something that I'm like, Ooh, I'm going to take that and run with it. Like how far can we go with rethinking the Martha Stewart, you know, um, wall of plates, a cascade of plates, <laughs> <laughs> um, as image, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, I'm, I'm looking at a lot of illustrators, um, and other surface designers, because I think, because I'm in a moment where I'm looking at how to manifest the rest, how to sustain a career. Like I'm exhausted. I've been working really, really hard. I have a four year old. Um, so I've, I've been looking at other people's careers that I admire. And, um, I really enjoy how Thomas Paul has Hmm. manifested his career through licensing, um, collaborative projects with multiple people. Um, but, uh, you know, and just trying to figure out, how how I'm going how I want to manifest my career ultimately yeah. and sort of what other and I you know Natalie Latay has long been someone that I've admired and she's incredible she's a little bit quiet like, like I kind of want to yeah. hear more from her <laughs> um, and and as far as you know fine artists go I mean I I'm pretty entrenched in I haven't been looking at a lot of ceramic artists and I haven't been looking at um, a lot of, I mean, I should be looking at more painters probably, but I, I feel like, um, I've been, I've been so focused on like making in my studio and trying to figure out what I want to do with this brand that I've sort of inadvertently created that I'm looking at a lot of designers. Mm -hmm. What's been the biggest challenge in your career so far? Making money. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think there's a certain point where, um, I mean, maybe not making money, um, but I think making money and retaining the integrity of what you're doing. Um, the essential question. Shifting from being a studio potter who was making their living off of studio pots, selling to the handmade supportive community, mm-hmm. and work, then shifting to work with, work with anthropology was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to explain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it, it's funny because you're not often in a position of having to explain yourself, but um, last fall I was a presenter at the utilitarian clay conference. And when they called me to ask me to go, I was like, you know that I'm not really like making my living selling studio pots in the tradition, in this mm-hmm. sort of traditional sense. And they're like, no, we want you to come. We think it's important that your voice is heard in this community. And I was like, okay. And it was like, I was, I mean, I had people coming up to me at the conference saying, we support you. And I was like, oh, what God. conversations are you guys having? Yeah, I was going to say, I was <laughs> like, are you just walking into the lion's den in that situation? And I was like, do I need support? Like, I'm not, I didn't feel mm-hmm. like I needed support, but I did feel like there is this trend. One of the reasons I wanted to, I wanted to go was because I felt like I was so unprepared for anthropology to call me and say, we want to work with you. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea how to advocate for myself in that situation and it certainly wasn't enough money initially to hire somebody to do that. Yeah. And um, I didn't know if I was getting a fair deal. And, and I didn't know if it was something that was going to last a long time. And I yeah. didn't know if it was – because what it meant was taking what I did best and sending it to a factory. And if the factory could do it, then why am I doing it? 
Um, and that sort of brought everything that I was doing into question. So I think it was a really tough shift. And, and initially I thought my pots were going to be decals, which is just like a print that's yeah. put on the surface. And my work is all inlaid by mm-hmm. hand. And there's this really, you know, brush paint painted by hand with color. And I just thought, you know, there's no way. My understanding of industry was that mm-hmm. they couldn't do that. And yeah. that it wasn't going to be affordable to do it. And one of the factories that Anthropology was working with um, was able to do it. And I wasn't expecting the samples to come back looking yeah. exactly like my work. And yeah. I, had, I remember this moment of being in this meeting, production meeting with Anthropology to approve these pieces to go into production. They're like, they did it. And I yeah. was like, they were so excited. And so I was like, <gasps> <and terrifying>. yeah. <laughs> going to do you know and I had to decide like in the moment I had to decide whether or not I was going to go for it or yeah. not and so I, what it turned into was like a hustle like mm-hmm. every time I had a meeting down there I brought you know I felt like the, the salesman on with watches on like I got, <laughs> I got like gold watches over here and I've got you know like I can make drawings I can make cards mm-hmm. I can you know I wanted them to see that I was interested in working in surface design mm-hmm. and other things and they they really you know kudos to them for taking that and running with it and putting me in touch with each other like one buyer doesn't benefit Mm -hmm. from putting me in front of another buyer but they did it and um they were really generous and um and it's now been almost four years of working with them and um like a couple hundred objects later you know it's crazy um and it's it's such a smart and sort of contemporary way to look at being an artist right now Mm -hmm. and I think that applies to anyone I think that's something that we people who write online have experienced a lot which is this like idea of like you don't exist in one place anymore. Like you should think of yourself as a maker of whatever that thing is you do well, but be prepared to apply that to a million different places because that's the future of the way people consume content, whether it's writing or an actual three-dimensional object. Like the idea of you as an artist who sort of is taking both drawing and other sort of three-dimensional things and applying them to different places is just the way your career will probably continue to grow. Well, and it, in the end, it didn't devalue my pots, actually. It did quite the opposite. And I was taken on by a really prestigious gallery around that time, and so that propelled my, you know, fine art career forward. And so what happened was that I had this, like, work that friends could afford all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Like, they were calling me and saying, I just picked up your pot, you know, and I can afford it. It's not $90 for a teacup. And yeah. I was like, you know, that's so hard like, when you can't even afford what you're making. And um, so it propelled this other work forward to, you know, art fairs in Miami mm-hmm. instead, you know, instead. So I think that's so great. Um, I want to talk a little bit about you teaching. Um, mm-hmm. You taught a tableware course at RISD and you're teaching ceramic and illustrations workshops and you taught online with Creative Bug, which is like such a huge platform for the makers community right now. Um, what do you enjoy about teaching and has it changed the way you work or look at your work at all? Yeah, uh, teaching is really important for me. I feel like um, I can still, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that I was a student, so I think uh, I struggle sometimes with whether or not to become a full-time professor, and I feel Mm -hmm. like I have so much to offer. I do not – I came out of graduate school in 2008, and it sucked. (laughs) It was awful. There were no jobs. I mean, I think there were literally two jobs posted for um, full-time professors in 2008, and so, I mean, it was, like, kind of futile effort. You know, why would you bother? Um, And so I feel like the students that are coming out of school now, like the caliber of work they have to have to compete with what's out there – and the things that I've learned just in the five years of being out of school, I feel like it's I have so much to offer them. Um, and also just, 
you know, a lot of the questions I get are not just about the technical things that I do when I teach workshops. It's about sort of this dichotomy of mm-hmm. working with industry. Um, how do I license my work? I want to, yeah. you know, and, and I really wanted to go to this conference and prepare people to be ready for the question because this yeah. is not going anywhere. Like yeah. these companies are really finding out that there's this huge community that's totally untapped and we're all eager to help, you know, to make a living. So I think, um, I, you know, not all of us, but I shouldn't speak for all of us. I should say that a lot of people would be excited to have a scarf or a bag mm-hmm. or a, <laughs> um, or a teacup. Um, so I think teaching for me is also a way to make, make sure that I'm still thinking in the big picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, when I teach with my students at RISD and, and other classes that I teach for long, like semester long courses yeah. and I deluge them with re- reading and you know, I'm reading a lot of, um, I'm really excited that Glenn Adamson is the new director at MAD, um, coming from the UK. Like his writing to me, like he's like my little hero of craft thinking <laughs> these days. And I, I'm so happy that I'm really excited to see what they do. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that there's, um, it's just so important for me to think about like both what I'm making and being on trend and, you know, making, but also thinking about like how my work fits into this bigger picture. And I think mm-hmm. teaching enforces you to think about all the process that you're doing, but also how that fits. It sounds like you're constantly thinking about the big picture, which, <laughs> which I like big picture wise. What do you think that is the biggest change in the ceramics community, whether it's makers or buyers slash supporters mm. in the last few years. I feel like every time I talk to any fine artist, they talk about the difference between the way they interacted with their community, like just five years ago versus now. And I feel like the people buying your work are very different than they were. What do you think the biggest change has been? It's a, it's a little bit hard for me to say, but yeah, I definitely think that um, there's like a generation gap that's mm-hmm. happening. Like I think our, and I would lump myself into a younger generation of artists who really know how to use social media and Mm. and the internet to promote themselves and they can rely on their own shops, uh, you know, independent of galleries. Like I think the gallery world is really shifting um, where you used to need them. Like even when I was first starting in my career, you you couldn't post, you couldn't afford to have a shop online. It just didn't work. Um, And then, you know, with the arrival of Etsy and Big Cartel and a lot of the other um, online shops, um, opportunities, options, um, that changed. And I think, um, they, there's also sort of a, like, I I didn't have my first email address until I was like my senior year of college, you know, (laughs) I mean, I think maybe, or maybe my junior year or something. I mean, it wasn't that this has exploded and it's really changed. I mean, especially for a community. I mean, it's such a traditional material and such a traditional medium. It's like that much further behind everybody else. Um, so the savvy ones are pushing forward and getting more seen. And Mm -hmm. I think, um, like Ayumi Horie is an amazing example of someone who has really taken advantage of, um, media and online. And I, you know, I think the new, the new postcard or the new show announcement is a trailer. Like I just, I've been thinking about video and how to incorporate video into what I'm doing more and more, like not but just like video, like this is the show I'm working on. This yeah. is, I just posted a video today and about a project I did for Keith Johnson and Glenn Sank in their new kitchen. And it's a video of, you know, me collaborating with him in the process that I'm doing. So people can come and see like what I'm doing and how it is to work with me. And that I'm a person on the other side of this project that maybe costs 30 or $40,000, yes. but that's, I'm a person on the other side of that. And um, so it's valuable from everywhere from like the craft all the way through to, you know, the, the fine art end of things. And, and 
the gallery world, as far as I can tell, so there's sort of, you know, this bizarre and intense shift towards art fair. Mm -hmm. Um, Like all of the sales that pretty much I've made of my artwork um, have been through connections at at art fairs. And Mm -hmm. um, like I'm talking about Miami and Basel and a lot of the um, other art fairs that happen. Um, There was one in Southampton that I was in this summer and I have a new gallery in New York, um, Todd Merrill, and he's doing a show at the, um, at the um, armory this weekend. And Mm -hmm. It's just, it's one of those things where I wasn't really expecting that to be part of my career, but um, that's become really valuable. And it, it's sort of like, you know, people talk more about the booth that the gallery than the gallery itself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty interesting. That's so fascinating. I have like a million other questions to ask you, but we're totally out of time. Oh, no. <laughs> so I'm going to have, this will be part one of two, maybe. Maybe <laughs> well, next time you get back in town, we'll have to continue right. this conversation. Um <laughs> Uh, for any of you listening, you can find Molly at mollyhatch.com. You can find her on Twitter as Molly Hatch, at Facebook at Molly Hatch Ceramics, and you can shop a selection of her work at Anthropology as well. And you have your first book coming out in 2015. Really quickly, tell us I what do. that is. I can't tell you a oh, lot, you can't. but it's, okay. <laughs> it's definitely exciting, and it's a reflecting history, and I'm working with a museum, and Chronicle's been really supportive, and there are a few sneak peeks coming on That's my awesome. Twitter feed and things like that. So Instagram and things. So okay. we'll have to have you those. back when the book is yes, out. We'll do that. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much for being <laughs> here, Molly. Thanks and thanks for, for listening, everybody. We'll see you next Thursday. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.